Welcome to Size and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McCluss Holmes, fashion cultural historian. My guest this week is pop artist, painter, and sculptor Alan Jones. In February, I flew to London, and on my first day, very jet lagged, I took a train out to Oxfordshire to meet Alan at his rural home and studio. One of Britain's most famous living artists, at 85, he continues to paint every day in his large barn like studio in the beautiful English countryside. He is known for his brightly colored paintings, prints, and sculptures, often of the female form, riffing on fetish imagery. He became famous, or maybe rather infamous, for his 1969 sculptures of female mannequins as furniture, a chair, a hat stand, and a table. You would probably recognize them. These provocative sculptures caused an uproar, with feminists widely decrying them as misogynistic. This backlash still lingers today, yet Alan's art is much more than just these works. Alan was born in Southampton in 1937 and grew up in the London suburbs. He studied painting lithography at Hornsey College of Art, after which he entered the Royal College of Art in 1959 alongside what was to become the first generation of British pop artists, David Hockney, Peter Phillips, Derek Bouchier, R.B. Kittage. Known as the Royal College as a group of troublemakers, at the end of their first year, Jones was expelled to set an example. He returned to the Hornsey College of Art to take a teacher training course, after which he taught lithography at the Croydon College of Art and then drawing at Chelsea School of Art. In 1964, he moved to New York with his first wife and lived for a year at the Chelsea Hotel before going on an extended tour of the United States by car. Though I had a huge list of subjects to cover, the majority of our conversation ended up focusing on that year in New York, his trip around the United States, his first time in Los Angeles, and the huge impact that trip had on his work, from his introduction to fetish imagery to the development of a more hard-edged painting style. We also cover his more recent work and how the pandemic led Alan and his wife to move to the countryside full-time. I have been a huge fan of Alan's work for decades. Just to give you a little background, I became obsessed with the singer Adam Ant when I was still a child. This was the early 90s, and it definitely wasn't cool to be a fan of his then. But I made it my mission to learn about and understand everything he spoke about. On Adam and the Ant's first album, there's a song called Friends, which contains the lyric, I'm a friend of Alan Jones. That led me down a rabbit hole learning all about Alan's work, which was a major influence on Adam Ant's aesthetic and music. And now decades later, I can safely say that Alan's artwork has also been a major influence on my aesthetic and taste. I'd like to thank Joan Quinn for connecting us. You can go back to episode 32 to listen to my conversation with her. With such a long and illustrious career, it's unsurprising that there have been many books and exhibition catalogs published about Alan's work. Hopefully this conversation whets your appetite to learn more about him. On the website, I've put together a slideshow of images of Alan's paintings, sculptures, and prints, so please head there to get a visual on what we discuss. Share with your friends, subscribe, and please write a review so that more people can find their way to this podcast. Enjoy. So how did you bump into Joan? I reached out to Joan just because I found her world as a sort of center of the L.A. art world really fascinating. Yes, I mean, how did you become aware of her? I think I first sort of came across her doing some research on something else that I was reading through old L.A. Times, and they would sort of mention a party at Joan Quinn's house. And then you 
looked her up and yeah, found the, her YouTube with, that she has the shows up, followed her and was like, okay, this is really interesting. And the more research I did, I was like, this is a very fascinating person with a very fascinating story yeah. and so slightly different. Whereas a lot of the people that I've interviewed before were sort of the creators. She was sort of like the person yes. in, in the midst of all the creators, you know? Yes, and of course what happens is that someone who's you know, primarily a collector or a consumer, uh, in the end becomes, you know, the, the people, the, the, they're a conduit from, yeah. you know, because uh, um, inevitably there are the, well, not inevitably, but in their case, it became, you know, the, the social thing uh, allows uh, cross-fertilisation, which is quite interesting. Certainly that's what happened uh, uh, with me. Although there was a woman there before her, they overlapped in age-wise, but... Uh, who was a big collector there, not of European art, but called Betty Asher. And it was just by chance that I was introduced to her when I first was going for a show in California. And uh, this person in New York said, uh, oh, do you know anyone out there? No. Oh, I know this person, I'll look after you, blah, blah, blah. Chance pitches you into the deep end, you know. And uh, uh, through that woman, who, who was an art collector, that I met all the Ed Ruchets and Billy Bengstons and so on of the, the whole art scene out there. It's, in, it's interesting because it's, um, you think how, how everyone's sort of march through life seems to, a lot of it is really to do with chance, isn't it? It's quite interesting. Yeah, that's something that's come up in a lot of my interviews and a chance will like lead you off in the right direction. You have no idea that possible. There was a moment in the uh, 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 60s and 70s when all the best, uh, all the emergent rock bands, a hell of a lot of them actually, were art students. And it was an interesting idea that actually you study for three or four years out of paint pictures and you actually end up as a professional musician. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a funny thing, though, because um, that's always a way for artists to earn a living as you do part-time teaching somewhere. And that idea that... But actually what you're doing is producing a rock musicians for the next <laughs> decade. You know, it's a funny idea, really. Had you always been interested in art? As yeah, like a little child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always someone in the class who's good at school at art, isn't there? You know, there's, there's always someone who's... And so um, I had a facility for drawing, I suppose, that, uh, you know, how they always say, oh, he's good at art, you know, but... Uh, and then I, I have an old uh, autograph book from when one was a child and uh, Uncle so-and-so would sign best wishes in your, your autograph book or someone knew a famous face and would take the book off so you had this autograph of some famous actor or footballer or something. And uh, um, I found the book, uh, when I say the other day, it was in fact obviously a few years ago, uh, when we were moving down here. And uh, I hadn't seen it since I really was, I suppose, a teenager. When I looked through, there was um, a best wishes thing in your future career in art. And it signed Miss Summer Hayes, who was the teacher at infant school. So I, I, I'm leaving, I would have been 11 years old, you know. And you think, <laughs> you know, that was quite something to find someone who was just, um, you know, obviously encouraging you, but nevertheless had that uh, conviction that um, it was, you were going to go that way, you know. 
My dad was good at, um, at art. Uh, he was an amateur watercolorist. And so there's all that stuff. And it's the, the war, the end of the war. And so uh, there was a, maybe in those days you'd spend more time at home than you would now with social media and uh, outdoor activities and one thing or another. And so uh, watching him paint, laboriously painting watercolors was um, all those things uh, were, were, weren't planned, but I mean, it just stoked the fire, I suppose. Do you have any of his watercolors still? Yeah, I do, yeah, yeah. He's, he was from uh, South Wales, where we used to go and have our summer holidays uh, with grandparents. So their views of the local hills and the seaside cliffs and so on, you know. But um, they're, they're, they're nice little things, you know. I thought maybe of giving them or offering them to the museum in Swansea, the, uh, uh, where he came from, but um, I don't know whether they're interested or not, you know. Most likely if I said I'd give them something as well might add to the encouragement, but it does seem... It's the context, isn't it? It's everything, really, you know. Otherwise it's just a trinket or, a, you know, the, or another, another picture of some hill somewhere, you know. But um, it's the uh, context. Everything. In, in juxtaposition with your your own work, it they start to mean something, you know, to take on a real meaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose so. And you were saying you grew up in Ealing. Yes, I suppose on public transport about a half an hour west of Marble Arch, which was basically what I it, it grew up thinking was the beginning of the West End, which it is really uh, from our side, the west side of town. You got on at the end of the underground line, the central line, and uh, 20 minutes later you come up the escalator and suddenly you're in the city, which is always very exciting, really. It is interesting that that idea that the city was glamorous in a funny way because uh, you end up with work, which is, one's creative work is urban-based and is about that kind of thing, really. The other thing was that um, my folks were very into going to all the kind of formal events. So if there were coronations or this, the Lord Mayor's show, all these things which were to do with pageantry, uh, no doubt one brightened up their existence post-war. And uh, obviously it was, to, to me, it was better than going to the pantomime, you know. And so uh, one, one of the early memories was at Marble Arch was that the big victory parade was um, being prepared and the whole of Hyde Park was used as an encampment for uh, all the foreign troops who were from the Commonwealth who were going to take part in the parade. And so to go up there and walk amongst, you know, this huge tented area with exotic foreigners there, uh, mainly black, I suppose, would have been the most amazing thing, really. Not so much amazing, but uh, we're just um, uh, different from one's uh, daily experience. And so the um, parades were, that, and ceremony, really, is that the thing, you know. Staying out all night camping to see the coronation, you know, of the Queen, uh, when I was about 13, I suppose, wandering off down Piccadilly to and finding the Sunday newspaper when it was still Saturday evening and realising that, you know, somehow or other it never occurred to me that you get 
the paper the day before, you know, and it said in the top corner that Everest was climbed, so which was the first time. And uh, in those days, the, um, the Times newspaper was very understated. It was, uh, there weren't banner headlines and photos. If anything, they had, um, I think, just um, a lot of advertisements. It was always a very close type. And so the, the nearest they came to a headline was in the top corner, there would be little capital letters that just said Everest climbed, you know. I still have the paper. I mean, it's, uh, I, I love collecting things. But uh, no, the cities um, was obviously um, an, an attractive place. Then you return to the suburbs, of course, and suddenly there's, um, you know, the only lamps on are the street lamps, and, uh, and it's a, a very quiet, different place. Yeah, what was it like, sort of, in the post-war era? Was it, you could, I mean, what was the atmosphere, I guess, in Britain? Well, everything, the, the great thing from my generation was that you grew up with everything got better. More food around, uh, more, well, more choice of food, really. Uh, travel got easier. And then, uh, you know, jet planes, uh, jet travel um, came along and... Uh, it wasn't until really the end of the 60s that penny dropped that this wasn't just a natural march of, uh, of civilization, you know, uh, that it sort of plateaued during the 70s. Uh, and you realize that actually it's, it's a cycle of history. It wasn't that if I'd been an older person, I would have known that maybe. But if you grew up with, you, you, you started in the wartime, I remember hearing bombs coming down and building opposite and the street being totally bombed out and things like this so that um, you just thought uh, it was the war to end all wars which they always say don't they? so when it ended you think well this is it it's, uh, so everything was a, a, seemed to be a positive development until you know otherwise <laughs> I mean it is interesting that actually with the advance of science it's actually slower to get from A to B now than it was 30 years ago. You have to spend, you know, typically, I, you go half hour before the flight normally, going somewhere. You know, 45 minutes if you're going transatlantic, you know, the idea you have to be there two, three hours before the plane flight. So the journey gets shorter because of the plane that you spent at each end. But it is amazing that, you know, travel has just simply got harder. You know. Oh, yeah. How long did it take you? I mean, I was at the airport, like, yeah, like three and a half hours ahead of time. I mean, too early, but, yeah. <laughs> you never know how the security's going to yeah. be anymore. Yeah. yeah, when you talk, when I talk to my parents about traveling back in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't like that. You could just turn up and buy a ticket, right? Well, I mean, I lived in, in Chelsea as a young man when I was teaching. I taught part-time in Hamburg. And uh, I'd go once a month for uh, a week, ten days to Hamburg. It was three hours door to door. From half hour, I'd drive from park on the street outside where we live in Chelsea. Half hour to London Airport, half hour before the flight. You know, about around an hour to Hamburg. uh, Half hour in, three hours door to door and I'm suddenly in this German art school, and you, think, you know, um, and it was possible. Now I think that that journey would take twice the time, you know. It's, it's a funny business, really. 
because the technology has become so sophisticated that, and it's interesting, the one thing that, is, uh, that I suppose can't be taken into account is all the other stuff that uh, is not uh, technology, which um, balances it out, you know. So I suppose if it still took uh, seven hours to fly to New York, then uh, it's, that would make it even worse, you know, so I suppose we progress. So in the mid-50s, you started at Hornsey, right? Yeah. Yeah. And did you live at home, or did you move into the city? No, I, I lived uh, at home. So uh, Hornsey, of course, is the exact other side of London. And so that was uh, an hour and a half each way each day, take the bus to the underground station, and then the underground mostly took you all the way across town and then a bus the other end. But um, I did that for, I think it was five years, the art school there. And then went to the uh, Royal College, got a scholarship to this college, uh, which was much nearer because that was South Kensington, and then did a teacher training course for a year. If you stayed the course at the, uh, at the Royal College of Art, or the Royal Academy, or the Slade, they were in a way considered postgraduate art courses. And at the end of it, you automatically were um, a qualified teacher on the government pay scale. But if you didn't have one of those um, degrees, uh, then you actually had to do a teacher training course. And I didn't stay the whole course at the college, and so uh, I did this year's training, which was also back the other side of London. And in those days, of course, um, you didn't take for granted you were going to end up showing at a gallery. And uh, so the advice was um, get your general certificates and so on and uh, get a teaching job. And so I taught printmaking, lithography, uh, was my first, first and only job, actually. And after two years, um, I was uh, able to support myself by being with a, at a gallery and so on. I was one of the people running the annual national student exhibition called The Young Contemporaries. I think it still goes on. Uh, which is open to all art students in the country uh, and is a West End venue and really is the sort of first chance you have to show in a professional space. You know. My generation turned out to be the pop generation, so the, the classmate was David Hockney famously, uh, Peter Phillips and, um, you know, it was about four or five, and we were all really in the same group. Came from different parts of the country as to the postgraduate course at the Royal College. Uh, but um, again, at that time, you just, you just knew whose work you liked, and uh, you knew that you were on this side of the fence rather than that side of the fence, stylistically, but the avant-garde then was American Abstract Expressionism, and so, if you represented the figure or did anything that was figurative, it was seen as pretty retro. And of course, the famous story is that obviously for our generation, the, there was an alternative uh, visual language to the fine art history of art because of the explosion of the cinema and the publishing media and uh, you had cartoon strips and uh, uh, advertising which didn't have anything to do with 
you know, how Toulouse Lautrec drew or, or uh, Vermeer or whoever it might be. It wasn't about the history of art, you know. And so that alternative visual language suddenly was a, a, a way of freeing yourself from that uh, problem. And again, uh, you know, I was fortunate. I, there was an American artist who was also on the course who was a wee bit older than us, so he'd already done military service and all that stuff. And his name was Kitai, and a very famous artist, really. But he chose to live in... He was a, a Europhile, so he um, uh, was living here. But that was interesting to have a sort of... a real live American, actually painting um, what looked to me like cowboys and Indians as a, as a mature person, um, which was so against the, the ethos of the art school. So all those little things uh, uh, added up, you know. But uh, again, I was um, out, out of, from that exhibition, uh, I got, was offered a contract, uh, a West End gallery, a very... Uh, secure West End, I mean, traditional gallery. Um, show the then most famous English artist was um, Stanley Spencer and, uh, and a man called Matthew Smith, um, which was sort of English focus and so on, and uh, suddenly able to give up teaching and, and painful time. And of course, um, and then in my first show, uh, this New York dealer, Richard Feigen, saw the work and offered me a contract. So, hey, off to New York, that's it, you know. I was 26, just got married. We went to get our papers at the American Embassy, Grosvenor Square. There's a woman there with, looking very serious with a, you know, judge's kind of black thing on and saying, you know, raise your right hand and all that stuff, you know. And uh, now you have the benefits of our great country. You must um, shoulder some of the responsibility. And after six months' residence, you must report for the draft. Oh, wow. So I came out of there thinking, wow, no one mentioned that at all, you know. And it was the Vietnam War that started. You know? But funny enough, I was... Um, I, 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 what I found the most ironic thing was that I was thinking, with my luck, I'll be drafted into the army, I'll be posted to Ryslip where there was a big American air base, and I have to go and see my parents wearing an American uniform. But uh, anyway, indeed, I did have to report. And so went down to City Hall, and stood in a line, which I most likely the sim oversimplification to say I was the only white face in the queue. I got to the front, and there's this recruiting sergeant sitting there, looks at my papers and everything, looks up at me and said, Why are you wasting my time? I said, Listen, I'm out of here, you know. And uh, I don't know to this day what it was. I mean, uh, you know. I was asthmatic, but I can't imagine that that was particularly highlighted, you know. I, so I was mystified as to what wasn't called up. I remember in the community there, by that time I was embedded in the art scene, and, um, 
and friends would say, uh, how old are you? See, and I'd say, well, I'm 27. So they said, you're married? Yeah, and you're white. He said, there's a huge sway in America before we get round to you, you know. I mean, that was just off-the-cuff conversation, but it was most likely got a measure of truth to it. Uh, I remember Hockney saying to me, oh, if you go to see, wear odd-coloured socks when you go to see the recruiting sergeant. Another idea that if they thought you were gay, they'd throw you out of the, the army. But the, um, the word was, if you actually got your call-up papers, you take the Greyhound to Niagara and, and get out that way. But it was, it was very uh, distasteful, really. Mercifully, I didn't have to do it, but I had no idea why not. Uh, but that would have, that would have changed one's uh, history. <laughs> you know, as we were talking about before we started recording, those like chance, you know, the luck of yeah. the draw, kind of, right? That's right. Um, and in fact, um, from my first or second show in 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 New York, in uh, one of the people who bought a small picture of mine was an artist and collector called. Bill Copley, who signed his name CPLY, left out the, the, uh, the O and the E. And he came from a very big West Coast newspaper family, not the Hursts, but he was the black sheep of the family and was an artist and went to Europe in the same way that I suppose we wanted to go to America. But he was a, a, from a previous generation. And um, uh, so he befriended uh, Magritte and Duchamp. And uh, I'd never been into a private apartment and seen fine art on the wall, you know. Uh, and to go into this apartment in Manhattan and uh, see Magritte and, and so on. and. Uh, uh, was was, um, was terrific, and and he was the man. When I had a a, a show, think of a show in Los Angeles, offered a show. Uh, Fight and Palmer pa, Palmer had a, a apartment in Los Angeles called pa, her Palmer, and so they for a while had a gallery together, uh, and so and uh, so it was Bill Copley who said, "Do you know anyone out there?" and recommended me to the Betty Asher and so on. So, you know, I suppose everybody's life is... You think, oh, I might not have bumped into that person. When Bill Copley bought a little painting of mine about this big, and uh, it, because it was very small, it wasn't a huge part of my economy in terms of having to sell pictures. And I knew he knew Duchamp. And so I said to him, Listen, if I give you the picture, how much extra do I have to give you to get a Duchamp valise? I wanted to have one of those. As a printmaker, I wanted to have one of these very famous um, artworks. And so he said, let me uh, think about that, you see. So it was Christmas Eve, and uh, I get a phone call. I was living at the Chelsea Hotel, and... Um, and his voice says, is that Alan Jones with a slightly thick foreign accent? So I said, yeah. 
He said, it's, this is Marcel Duchamp, you see. So I, I, thought, I thought it was Richard Feigen pulling my leg and I told him to F off, you know. It's just such a funny idea. And, then, and so the other end he was saying, you know, as though the lines were crossed, you know, very gracious about that. And, uh, and I suddenly thought, my God, it could be too short, you know. And so, uh, anyway, he invited us down for tea. And uh, what it was, was that he heard money was going to be changing hands, which actually, I would have thought for someone that successful, I mean, he was a, you know, it's already serious history. I was kind of shocked that a few hundred dollars would mean that much to him, but uh, when it came down to it, that, uh, that if money was going to change hands, he wanted, wanted it. And so uh, we gave him the money. And then uh, we, at the end of the thing, I'm th waiting for the, the, the deal, you know, and he said, do you ever go to Paris? You know, so I said, well, yeah, yeah, you know, but, you know, I've just arrived with a green card to, I thought, live in America, right? So he said, well, next time you're there, go into this gallery and say I sent you, they'll give you a valise, you know. So I'm out there on, in fact, I think it was 7th, he lived on 9th or 7th Street, and uh, thinking, I think I've just been screwed by Marcel Duchamp, you know. It was about three years later that I was in Paris. So I went in with a sort of slightly sinking heart. And in my sort of franglais, say, you know, just suis artiste anglais, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he went in the back and had this, all these ledgers, and he opened it. He said, what date was that? So I said, it's about three years ago, brother. And then he pulls out this thing, letter, and he said, is that your name? I countersigned it, he gave me the Belize, so, um, which I have, of course, to this day. It was such a funny kind of uh, uh, encounter with, um, uh, as far as I was concerned, a piece of real history, you know. The Chelsea was interesting, of course, that's, you know, it's since found its own way into the history books, but um, I remember that on the door, they had these plaques of the famous people who had lived there and died there, of which two were, one was Welsh and one was, um, Dylan Thomas was there, wasn't he, and, uh, and Brendan Behan, the Irish uh, poet. And uh, so the joke was, all oh, this, you know, you're being given a good deal at the hotel because they hope you're going to sort of add an, be another plaque on the, on the door. But that's all over now, isn't it, uh, Chelsea? It's a hotel now. You know, it's done tastefully, it's, but it's sort of, it's very different energy. Than, sure. Um, when you were living there, did you trade art to stay there? Because I know a lot of I people... Didn't. Did. I didn't. I didn't. I, um, th that was obviously on the cards, but, you know, such is vanity. You look around at the work that was on the wall, and there was the odd work there by someone that you thought that was looked like a good painting, but a lot of it was just sort of stuff that you didn't particularly regard. And I much prefer to sell the painting and pay the hotel bill, you know. But uh, we lived on one floor, an apartment on one floor, and the studio uh, was on the seventh, I think it was. It was basically a large room, I think. There must have been a little bathroom or 
kitchenette off it or something, but essentially it was, my memory was it was really one room. Uh, but that had been used by Larry Rivers before me. And so the, the, the glamorous nature of the whole thing, I mean, it was pretty pokey hotel. I mean, it was not uh, in that way glamorous, but on the other hand, you know, I didn't know any different. And uh, I'd never lived in a hotel before, so the whole thing was very exotic and exciting. And Oldenburg's wife, Patty, because uh, they had just got either got divorced or separated, but she was still living there. And in those days, she was helping or was in fact putting together the soft sculptures. And so um, there was that connection. And I met, I met Oldenburg, not surprising, I suppose, at that time, although it was the person I really got to know was Liechtenstein and Tom Wesselman. Those were the two artists, really and Rosenquist a bit. Had you been aware of the American pop art scene before you came to New York? Was it coming yeah. over to London already? Yeah, yeah. yeah. just, mm-hmm. just. And in fact, you have to bear in mind, there were no colour supplements in those days. I mean, there was no social media exists now. So the business of what you saw in a magazine or word of mouth or in the newspaper, uh, that was it. The art dealer, Peter Cochran, the gallery called Tooth's Gallery in London. He was a great magpie and obviously um, very hooked on avant-garde or modern art. He went to New York to buy work for an English guy who was obviously a collector of of new stuff, who was um, a professor at the School of uh, African Oriental Studies in, in London. You know, so it's a kind of remote thing, but I just knew that, that our art, Peter Cochran, was off to New York to see the scene. And when he came back, he invited me up and Peter Blake and uh, Peter Phillips, um, uh, who were obviously we're all just on the scene, really. Peter Blake was a bit ahead of us. But he invited us up to see photographs of the work he bought. One was Lichtenstein. I mean, we'd never seen any of this work. And the Liechtenstein was this just black and white photos, prints. And the Liechtenstein was a diptych, now very famous, called the pedal can diptych, and it's like a waste bin. And on one of them, the lid's open, and there's a foot on the lid, which is up, and the next one, the foot's down, and the lid's reversed. One's closed and then open. And, you know, I mean, it was just a comic strip image, you know, and uh, that was the language of it. I, it was fantastic to see this thing and think, listen, what am I worried about? What am I doing? You know, whether you should do this or do that and so on. And you think, you know, he gave you license to be fearless, you know, whether or not one was fearless enough, history will tell. But um, uh, that was interesting. And uh, that's the first Oldenburgs were um, a dish of cookies. The dish was just chopboard. It was a glass, my memory was, was a glass bowl, a little stand, a dish really, uh, with these cookies which were all, I suppose, made of uh, plaster of Paris, and I didn't know what they were made of, you know. Again, you know, that sculpture, you know, it was kind of amazing to see them, and uh, Cochrane had a funny story about it, because he said, um, he said, oh, I never met the artist, he said, um, he, um, he's, he had a place called The Store, which was, in fact, his 
his um, studio. He said, when you went in, he said, it was laid out like a shop with all these sculptures. He said, and uh, if you like something, he said, he wouldn't come down. He said, he was up on, you know, some mezzanine. And uh, he said, so we, um, we just sort of called to each other, you know. And he said, uh, we said, um, how much is this? And he'd say, it's $700 or something, whatever it was. Of course, if you're a good wheeler dealer, you try and... Is that the best price, you know? And uh, so he offered a smaller price. And so uh, Oldenburg said, yeah, okay, just toss off one of the cookies. So it's a lovely idea that simply by taking one of them off, you could have it cheaper. I thought that was so wonderful. <laughs> so funny. No, it was, um, it, was, it was very interesting. There was a French artist there called Armand who was a huge collector of African art and so on. And uh, so it was like a rabbit warren at the Chelsea Hotel. And you, if you got to know someone, you'd go up and, of course, they would not only seen their work, but all the stuff they'd trade or collected. And so it was, a, a, it was a, a, quite an education, really. There was a man on the top floor who was a composer. I don't know what they've done with the top floor of the Chelsea now, but it, my memory was it had a fan light. It was literally one of the top floors, so there was fan light to daylight. This man uh, was... I don't know whether he was German, but he was definitely European. George Kleinsinger, most likely German. His fame rested on the f fact that he had written the music for the Danny Kaye film Tubby and Tuba. <laughs> So, Oldenburg said to me, this guy's, I'm coming to a, a lunch party, he said, uh, on the top floor of the hotel, and he knew I was living there, so he, he said, you want to come up with me? So he went up, climbed singer, you know, he was drinks and things, it was, you know, it was a loft party. There was a, a woman who presumably was a very well-known, she was a cellist. There was an interlude where she played, the, the whole thing, you know, was... I mean, one is she had no clothes on. And she, so she's playing away there. And then, as a part of it, she seemed to pick up a pistol and just you know, started firing it in the air, you see. So I'm sitting there thinking, hey, this is really... This is it, this is it, you know. Uh, and uh, Oldenburg said to me, hey, look, come over here, look at this. We go over and the piano's there, and on the piano is um, some sheet music with obviously George Kleinsinger's writing something. And so there's just these two lines of music. I can't read music. The top, the title was Standard Oil, you see. So Oldenburg thought that was so cool to write a piece of music called Standard Oil. And I'm looking and I thought, He's, it's a commercial, right, you know, such a funny idea, you know. But uh, that was it. I was there for a year. So that's the end of that little... You, while you were in America, you took a long road trip around the country, right? I did, yeah. The, uh, another artist, Peter Phillips, pop artist, uh, was in New York with the Harkness Fellowship. He was there. I think it was a two- or three-year fellowship. The fellowship provides you with a car for three months of that time. And the deal was you basically had to travel. I mean, it was a sort of soft power thing. It was a, if you had the fellowship, you were not allowed to 
returned to America for two years afterwards because it was not meant to be a conduit for you to then become a, just a resident. So I can see that it was very interesting because the recipients would then go home and for two years you were there singing the praises of how great America is. And I mean, it's a, I think it was a very interesting uh, way of soft power kind of thing. But all in all, um, Peter said, we were at art school together here, and so, you know, and we're the same generation, so on. And he said, listen, I've got this car. I mean, three months, what about a trip, you know? And uh, I just accepted to teach at a, the first year that Aspen did a, a fine, uh, did a painting course, because it was music up at the summer school. And through Richard Feigen, I'd been offered a summer school job, which I'd accepted. And then I thought, you know what, I'll maybe never have the opportunity again to drive in America for three months uh, for half the gas. You know, it was not, that was the only expense would be paying half the, the juice, you know. And so um, I pulled out of Aspen, which was um, a terrific. And we did this, we basically, I've got the map down in the, somewhere in the house. It's a, an old um, Rand McNally a roadmap thing. I, we used to do a line every time we just, at the end of the day, I'd fill in where we'd been. We went all the way, we traced the outline of the United States, really, and up, down to Key West, up through New Orleans and across the desert to um, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, we might have made a trip down to San Diego, but we didn't specifically go there. But, and then up to San Francisco and back through Salt Lake City coming over at Niagara and then down to, uh, back to town. Uh, that was a fantastic journey, really. Incredible. You know, it's a, it's a huge area. Uh, to be able to drive from, you know, snowy mountains to desert uh, in, in one journey is uh, it was a great experience. Really, really, really terrific. The slides are looking a little bit faded now. Mm. <laughs> So you photographed during it? Did you yeah. sketch or you just photographed? Yeah, yeah. Usually the things which seem to me exotic, like you're in a diner and the cops are also having a coffee there and there's this guy who looks like he's armed like the Wild West, you know, he's got this, you know, and they're not just pistol, but I mean, there's like, you know, pearl handle kind of thing, you know. And it's amazing how many, I don't know doubt what they do it now, but how many women would be sitting around with their hair in curlers with a little hairnet over them, and you'd think, this is the middle of the day, and I'm in a diner somewhere, you know. And they said, oh, it's Friday night, Friday night. <laughs> you know, Friday night, you take them out. <laughs> it is interesting, really, because of sort of a lot of the photographs that you take, in retrospect, you think, well, it could just be National Geographic, you know, it's... A, as we were saying, it's the context that gives them their significance. But, but it was also really an eye-opener and instructor. I really loved going through the, uh, what were then, I suppose, like the Indian territories, really, the um, Arizona, New Mexico, and uh, all that stuff. I mean, it was just, just, just fabulous, really, uh, to see all that. And then uh, I uh, subsequently got uh, invitations to teach at various places. I taught at UCLA for a year, and then another time I taught at uh, Irvine, UC Irvine. I also got a fellowship to make prints at the Tamarind, 
Institute in Los Angeles, which was dedicated to introducing fine art printmaking lithography to America. Uh, that was in the late 60s. I think I spent about five years off and on, and a, usually a year at a stretch. And I taught also at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And that was, my twins were then a year old. And suddenly, out of the blue, you get this invitation to teach in Florida. And I thought, hey, you know, it can't be bad for the twins' second year on Earth. They can actually be in a warmer, pleasant place, you know. Is that the Frank Lloyd Wright campus, the University of South Florida? Uh, that's interesting. I should know that, but um, uh, but I that would be that would be a surprise to me if okay. it was. There's some school that's around there that I went went to tour because it's all Frank Lloyd Wright. I thought it was that, but did it's you around Tampa. Did you go to Taliesin West? I did. Did you go on that trip? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I think I did on that trip. I'm, in truth, I, I, I'm not sure. I mm-hmm. might have been on one of my stays in Los Angeles. But that, that was pretty fabulous. I mean, wasn't it interesting how sort of handmade everything was, mm-hmm. you know? Because you see in photographs, and you, you know about Frank Lloyd Wright, and you see these wonderful things. And when you got to this place which was so important in his life and development, and you can see that um, they were trying things, but it was a case of you know, whatever was to hand, you know. I remember the big deal was, was the first cantilever, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was the uh, counterbalance by the room upstairs or whatever it was. And once in Chicago, where I was m- m- making prints, I went to see a Frank Lloyd Wright building, which was some kind, of, I think it was being used as some kind of international student place or whatever. I went there very much as a sort of a tourist because I was working there for two weeks in Chicago and um, I went to see this building and they'd knocked a hole in the, in the wall of the, the garden wall to, to put, I suppose, and facilitate the entrance to whoever was using the place. And um, you know the Frank Lloyd Wright bricks are very particular, they're quite narrow. They've got this nice ready brown terracotta colour but what was interesting was that the middle of the brick was a pale yellowy colour where the, I suppose the firing hadn't, you know, just didn't affect it so much through. But anyway, I was standing there on the pavement in suburbia, really, a part of Chicago, it's residential. Uh, there's this hole in the wall and there's this pile of rubble, which is obviously going to be cleared away. There's a brick which is pretty well complete. I pick it up and I thought, that's a Frank Lloyd Wright brick, and it's just being thrown away, so I kept it. <laughs> and uh, when I had, we lived for many years in a loft building in Smithfield. We only just sold a couple of years ago with COVID business. In New York, it would be called a loft building, and uh, it was an f- old factory, we converted. Uh, I had this brick, so when they were plastering the wall, I had them insert it in the wall and just stick out a little bit so you saw this dark line there. What I suddenly thought of after I'd sold the place only a couple of years ago, we were there for 40 odd years, was I thought, well, maybe I should tell him what that little thing, because if you were repainting the wall, you'd think, what is this sticking out? You know, I, should, I should let him know, really. I'm not sure I bothered to do it, but... Uh, here we go, now we're at Frank Lloyd Wright in <laughs> Chicago. 
Yeah, well, we got there because we were talking about the various places you taught. How did teaching, I guess, change your approach to your own work? What affected my teaching, in retrospect, was, in fact, doing the teacher training course because I realised that mates of mine who taught because of the deep degree from the, one of the major colleges, I noticed that their teaching was sort of basically giving an opinion. You know, I think that's good, that could be better, you know, and so on. Uh, whereas if, in fact, you'd done a teacher training course, then you had a pedagogic kind of interest in, in conveying information and that there was a didactic thing. It wasn't a case of what you're... I like it this way or I think that could be better. And so that was important to me because it also encouraged me to deal with the student on what their perception was and what, not what I thought it should be. You know, how life uh, turned out for them was not your problem. Uh, so it was the interaction with the students I realise now uh, was different than if in fact... Um, you know, I'm paid to give you my opinion, you know. I don't think it's informed my, my, my work that way around. I am a slow worker. I don't know whether that has anything to do with it, but um, at UCLA or any place where you're visiting, they were, I was doing like a three-day week. And so, um, you know, that gave you the rest of the week to, uh, to get on with your own uh, work. But it was by the, the end of the 60s uh, that um, the, the return from the gallery was the contract uh, with the gallery. I only taught for two years uh, full-time, really. Yes. I think one of the interesting things, of course, is that, um, I, again, I don't know whether it influenced my work in any way, but that there was, it wasn't just a chore to teach because that was how you got some money, that it was interesting to have to interact with people from different perspectives, different walks of life and different backgrounds. You did have to have a real exchange with them. I was quite interested in, in uh, that, uh, and how many of the people who have been art students when I taught briefly uh, actually did it professionally. And uh, there are two or three, actually, from uh, teaching in, in Germany. There are certainly two quite well-known artists. I'm pleased to see you are still uh, painting away, and they've got to be, they've got to be now <laughs> nearly 70, you know, or something like that. It's quite amazing. Who are they? Uh, the w woman's called Almut Heiser, and uh, the other one's a woman, too, who's wrote to me not that long ago, actually, seeing whether or not I could, had any influence on the gallery in London that she wanted to show up, which I don't. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's quite nice to know it's, <laughs> there's been a bit of a payoff there. I read that, um, that you sort of became exposed to the sort of fetish imagery when you were in America. Is that sort of when you became part of your work? The sort of Fredericks of Hollywood yeah. fetish work? Yes, it's difficult to know whether... I think what happened in America, really, was that it was the first time that I had seen erotica presented in a straightforward, over-the-counter comic strip way. And uh, again, that uh, transgressive uh, aspect of the illustration, you know, that, that visual language, I'm not necessarily meaning the subject matter, but I'm meaning the 
that genre of illustration also had nothing to do with the history of figurative painting, really. Just the same as, uh, I mean, uh, I met Alberto Vargas, and I'd never met Petty, but I mean, and I preferred out of the two, I preferred uh, the the Vargas uh, uh, pin-ups. He was an old man living in Los Angeles, and it um, tickled my fancy to be able to meet him. And he was this gracious old, I think he was Peruvian, and uh, unlike me, he had this terrifically dense black hair. And uh, he was obviously quite dapper as an old man. He must have been quite a smooth character as a youngster. He lived in a small, um, what we call a bungalow, tract house in Los Angeles. In, uh, uh, I can't remember the, the area now, but it's basically inland from Venice Beach and that sort of area. Now I can think of it, I, I think it was further inland than that. I think you went down Wilshire uh, for quite a long way uh, and then it's just struck off into this sort of, you know, where it's just big housing development. Uh, but he had... Uh, on the wall, of course, the originals of some of his work. And again, it had never occurred to me that he did the work and uh, Esquire put the jokes on them, you know. And and I suppose that I had thought that you'd be told the joke and then you illustrated it. He said, oh, they put put the the punchline on it, you know. But on the wall was a citation from the President of the United States... Uh, for his contribution to the war effort. I thought that was absolutely (laughs) wonderful, you know, Uh, because uh, one was used to seeing in, uh, you know, Life magazine or something, if you saw uh, an American uh, plane, war plane, uh, there was often a pin-up painted on the side outside the uh, cockpit window. And uh, I like the idea that, again, it's something which would have happened maybe in America and would, you know, no one in England would have thought of uh, giving a citation to a a, a cartoonist. I I wouldn't have thought at that time. But, uh, uh, no, Times Square, I mean, you know, that that whole uh, scene was so... And we had Soho, but it was um, uh, with its own little red light district. But... um, that, that business of, of uh, art, which, uh, or how to deal with the figure uh, outside of the uh, accepted mainstream way. Um, and you had, of course, uh, people like Dubuffet, um, uh, who used the, um, uh, the kind of um, figuration that might come out of mad people drawing and and using a very old-fashioned term by saying mad people do you know what i mean so that business of of artists in the mid-20th century trying to find a a way to circumvent the tradition of representation which had hit the buffers it was it had run out of steam you know people that taught me at art school you know, the greatest compliment we could give you was to say your work looked like Sickert, and the greatest compliment you'd give him to say his work looked like Degas, and the greatest compliment you'd give, and so on, you know. You know, even as a student, that, that's not what I saw as, you know, as one's um, mission in life was to look as though you could have been someone from uh, 50 years before. <laughs> 
course, now I am someone from 50 years before. <laughs> Did you consider yourself a pop artist? Did you think that that was like a good descriptor for your work, or did you feel part of that movement? Well, I never saw myself as, as sort of, you know, central to it. I mean, my understanding of pop art I was, I thought that it was American. The great difference between the American pop as, as opposed to any manifestation in Europe was that the Americans had very easily and clearly dumped the notion of illusion, illusionistic depth. And uh, I can't think of a European artist who uh, didn't still have the vestige of that European tradition. Patrick Caulfield would have been the artist most planographic in his, and, and graphically flat in the imagery, but in fact, there is a, an optical uh, spatial illusion there with the work, which um, was swept away uh, in America. I mean, it was incredible. But um, in that way, I don't. I mean, I, do, I, I see once in the in the books now as one of the home team, and uh, I now regard it in the way that I imagine. I like to think Matisse would reflect on it if someone said to him, "Are you a Fauvist?" You know, uh, it was something that you were a part of and happened, and um, its influence is not particularly related to how it's written up. You mm -hmm. know. Yeah, that's always an interesting sort of... I mean, other than the artists who write the manifestos, how other artists just sort of get incorporated and we see it yeah. later, you know, and we're taught, like I was taught about this in you know, <clears throat> yeah. school. And you just sort of ex sort of believe that all, for all these sort of like neat packages, right? Yes, that's right. Um, that's right. I mean, one of the things, again, uh, as a visitor, I realised more recently that actually it was because one was a visitor, that most likely one had such free exchange and access to people that if you were a competitor, might not have been there. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't think about that for many years. And I just, you know, you just, there is a popular notion of how outgoing and, um, uh, and gregarious Americans are. And so, you know, you think, yeah, that was my experience, you see. But um, then I remember once, in fact, it was Billy L. Benson, recently deceased, who said, um, yeah, well, you're a, you're a visitor, you know. And, I, I, and then the penny dropped that actually that most likely was true, that actually when once you started showing on the scene and become a bit of a, a fixture, which I did, and suddenly, you know, that's because if you're already friends, that was that. But it meant that in the early days, certainly in my first visit to America and my New York experience, was that I found that uh, the generosity of um, spirit from the artists, that any artist that I bumped into, was very interesting. One is they were all older than me, because of course you're you're there as a visitor, as we said. I found that if I was visiting or talking to an artist who was also figurative artist, basically, and we'll say pop art we're talking about, that there was very little discussion about art. The discussion might be about the media one's using, whether or not, you know, how do you do that varnish or whatever, you know. Uh, or else you just enjoy hanging out, you know, which is what happened. Uh, whereas I was invited by Barnett Newman to his studio, you know, now he's a, he, was, he was old enough to be my father, you know, that um, 
how would he come to see my show, first show in New York, you know? And then I also, you know, was known as a printmaker in those days. You maybe show prints at the same time as you show in paintings now. They often kept differently, but, you know, uh, he asked me to uh, go up to his apartment and see this... Uh, he just made some lithographs for the first time, you know. Go out there and, and be asked um, my opinion on his prints was kind of incredible, you know, for me. And uh, it was terrific. So it was, there's Barnett Newman, there was Ad Reinhardt. These are artists who stylistically on the other side of the planet. There was um, a performance artist too, whose name has, of course, just slipped my mind who was the hot stuff at that time and was having a show at the Guggenheim and all the rest of this stuff. And uh, I went to his studio and we're chatting where we're talking about art, you know. And uh, my thing was that it always seems to me that I can understand why I'm interested in someone whose work seems more pared down or more, in a way, experimental than mine. But I couldn't ever understand why they, for their position, would be interested in my work, which I imagine would appear retrogressive because I haven't made that step, you know. And uh, I remember this guy saying, yeah, but it's all art, you know. And uh, that kind of openness was um, very interesting and uh, very exciting. So, you know, the, you got a great buzz out of it. Worked like crazy, you know. Was your social life, even like when you returned to London, and obviously you were married and had young kids, was it always sort of surrounded by other artists? Was that sort of your social world? Well, I suppose back here it was slightly less so. One, because, well, the family, you're involved with that. But yes, one was always there, but it wasn't so much um, twisting the night away and hanging out in the way that, of necessity, you're a visitor somewhere's basically living in a hotel apartment mm-hmm. working. You were sort of almost permanently out on, on the lookout, really. One society was made through everybody else. Back here, I mean, um, one's friends weren't necessarily the artists that you were competing with or showing with. Anyway, it was, uh, those trips were, were good. And again, those chance, I mean, the, the invitation to Florida was because someone who had been a student of mine at the first art school I taught at when I first left art school, which was Croydon, teaching lithography, happened to end up in America and uh, was down there. I don't know whether he was teaching or was studying or something, and uh, the invitation came by chance, in a way. Um, The Tamarind first visit to Los Angeles for the Tamarind Fellowship, again, was because the curator of prints and drawings at the Museum of Modern Art, obviously had seen the, um, uh, the prints and knew, again, you were making a bit of a noise at that time, and uh, put me forward for the um, fellowship. Do you have a preference between the different media, or do you, like, you know, we were, you were just mentioning the lithographs, but also between painting and sculpture and photography, or, you know, you've worked across all of them. Yeah, I think I'm a painter who sculpts, you know, and so the, the sculptural ideas very much came out of the pictorial preoccupations. I mean, the, the overriding thing with the sculptures is that it started off as cutting out. What happened if you cut out a figure? Well, if you've cut it out of paper, it won't stand up unless you fold it. And so 
the folding had got nothing to do with the image on it. Folding was a structural decision. And so that as a departure point was kind of interesting, that the, uh, the structure was independent of the story. And, and by definition, if you've got a two-dimensional flat surface, whether it's a sheet of paper or a sheet of steel, there's two sides, you can see it, but there are two edges uh, where it, the story disappears. And so basically my sculptures have been how do you therefore imply or describe a volume that isn't there? Uh, hence the interlocking and interweaving of the forms. You know. uh, so that's essentially the mainspring of the, the sculptural work. And then, of course, the, the furniture sculptures, which uh, I suppose put me in the history book for good or ill, came out of, of the painting that, uh, again, the, the will to not to be flat in the American pop ver version of uh, figuration. When I returned to London, I set myself the task of seeing if I could paint a figure or a part of a figure as three-dimensionally as possible, and yet it remain a, a graphic flat fact. Uh, so I realized that actually I painted uh, basically the, on a three-foot square canvas, the distance from the knee to a person's knee to the floor, if they were wearing a high heel, would be about three feet. Uh, or just under a metre in new money. Uh, I realised that you could paint on the canvas as illusionistically three-dimensional as you want to. But if you, in fact, put a shelf on the bottom of the canvas, it would declare at the same time with, it would be impossible not to see the canvas as a flat fact. Uh, and that kicked off a whole new direction of thinking because um, I started off by doing a series of small three-foot square canvases. I think I did about five of them and then thought I've got to stop this otherwise I'll never do anything else. And um, I still have one of them and uh, one's in the Tate and I don't know where the others are in different places. Uh, then I tend to work, I like working on about a six-foot square because it's sort of um, life-size and you have to confront the canvas in a one-to-one -one way, uh, which me, seems to mean something to me. So then I thought, well, if you put a shelf on the bottom of a six-foot square canvas, you're not far off the floor, and it was an obvious thing to make it come into steps. Uh, and then the, the, the implication there was that, of course, you're inviting the viewer to go into the picture there's a staircase but by the same token you're inviting the figure to come out so then I thought well what if I just made the figure so uh, then of course this was against the background in New York you had Siegel who was one of the few figurative sculptors uh, but he his art was to use Every day found objects or real objects, but the figure was always in plaster, so that let you know it was art. Uh, there was an artist in Los Angeles, Robert Graham, um, a much-loved old friend. 
and he did these immaculately impeccable little uh, wax figures which he would put in a little acrylic box as though they were in a little room and they were again quite uh, transgressive in terms of what you would think sculpture of the figure should be very original uh, but I realized that they let the viewer know there was a signal one the Robert Graham was that they were very small and in the box and the seagulls they were made out of plaster they Paris they most they look like that anyway that, that this must be art and I thought how do you make a comment about the figure uh, devoid of those artistic references and of course we have Madame Tussauds and so I uh, got in touch with them and found out who their fabricators were uh, and uh, worked with one of the fabricators. The first figure was the hat stand, uh, now called the hat stand, it never occurred to me to call it the hat stand. My idea was to make this figure which said, here I am. So you got, and it was a sort of a, you know, if you're going to make a figure and I wasn't terribly interested in what the figure was going to do, I just wanted it to be there. Um, and so the idea that it was, you know, sort of an ancient form of greeting, so it's the raised welcome position. I wasn't interested in getting into uh, faking surface description of anatomy and uh, sexual parts and body hair and so on. And so the idea of covering the vital parts of the figure uh, as though they were a showgirl came from, and in fact, of course, the, the, you'd seen the bondage magazines and it all looked very exciting. Uh, that's, that's, that was the first sculpture. And when, once it was finished, I realised that if you put that in a window display in Oxford Street, someone would think it was just a rather bizarre window mannequin. And also I realised that in that way, someone looking at it would think it was like, um, you have the, the background reference of surrealist found objects. And uh, it, it, it wasn't a, a found object. And so that's when I hit on the idea of making the sculpture appear to have a function. Uh, and so the idea, again, you'd seen a little cartoon somewhere of a figure as a, as a table. And that seemed quite, um, that was a good idea. So having made the table, then you made the chair. And it was only when they went on exhibition that, that um, the press came up with the idea, well, there's the table, the chair, what's this figure? It's a hat stand, you know, you put a hat on the thing. The genesis of that work was to question and offend the canons of what was considered fine art, uh, not to insult half the population of the world. <laughs> but those sculptures, um, like any object, is um, conditioned by the person who's looking at it. Were you surprised by the reaction to them? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was... You know, one is I hadn't ever thought of that connotation. Uh, number two, my wife was, uh, my wife, my life, was uh, uh, surrounded by women. I mean, I only had 
twin daughters, you know, and so on and so on. But um, no, that was not a, that was a total. It's not a part of my life. And of course, then the difficulty is is that if you uh, subsequently, if you speak about it, it sounds as though it's a, de- a defence uh, or an apology, you know. So it's, um, that's a difficult thing, really. But uh, now it's quite interesting because uh, that, that generation, in a way, is, uh, is now middle-aged and um, uh, people of 30 and under have a, a different perspective on life. And uh, on, on imagery now, the, the can of worms is well and truly open. <laughs> it's interesting to read in the baby realise how, how what uh, uh, children through the iPhone, what they are exposed to, is is staggering, really. The educational problems are uh, are so different from when one was actually uh, teaching for a living. Um, incredible. Incredible. You're still working, right? You're, are yeah. you still painting? And um, how long have you been in this location? Uh, been here for, and this, we've been in the area for about four years as weekending. I had a cottage in a neighbouring village about 25, nearly 30 years ago. This, a farm was being split up locally. Mm-hmm. We ended up with a farmhouse and uh, sold the cottage and uh, I bought the farmhouse and uh, about five acres of land that went with it. And uh, over that time, uh, you will see when we walked down to the house that uh, when we came here, it was an open sheep meadow. But um, over the years, we've um, uh, planted trees and God knows what. And basically, uh, it's, it's a way of... Uh, it, initially, it was a way of storing sculptures. Um, but... Uh, it's been a great pleasure to create the um, uh, uh, make our own um, landscape, really. My wife's um, really into it. I'm much more interested in the sort of visual layout of the, uh, what happens when you fill in the space and you, and you open a hole in it, you know, all that kind of stuff. But with the COVID, um, I, I, we always used to, for until uh, to two and a half years ago, <coughs> we uh, would be, live in the city, in the, just off the meat market, Smithfield, where I had an apartment, big apartment and studio. <coughs> and uh, we would come down on Thursday night and go back on Sunday night. Uh, but um, because of COVID, uh, it was easier to stay down here. And uh, I would never have thought that I could sustain myself uh, interest-wise being permanently in the country but uh, needs must and uh, it's worked out very well really Uh, so what we've done is we've bought ourselves an apartment near Baker Street we can uh, walk to the station that takes us to Banbury and so uh, the commute now in the car is problematic and traffic's pretty bad but the journey is used to be an hour and a half, and it's now easily two, two and a half if you're driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, it's, it's just changed our options, really. And so now, of course, uh, I had to find a place to put the London studio. And because we've got a bit of space here, that's produced these two little new barns that are outside for storing sculpture and works on paper and so on. 
so that this remains the, really the workplace. And as you see, mixing the three dimension and the two dimensions, mm-hmm. um, really. These are all new, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, these, these are not, uh, nothing in here has been uh, shown before. Of course, you may, the, the, the natural progression to the story line I gave you about uh, getting into three dimension is um, what happens uh, if uh, one of the sculptures move. And so uh, here is the, uh, wow. the hat stand sculpture. It was an interesting, I worked with a, uh, one of the, uh, one of my collectors was a guy who was one of the inventors of Nintendo. He put me in touch with one of his uh, designers, one of his um, guys, and um, uh, in discussion with him, and uh, uh, we made this, um, or he animated the, the uh, sculpture. But it was interesting because in his world, he's making avatars all the time. Mm-hmm. And so when I, he got the photographic material, which the figure was photographed all, all, from all round, we only ever communicated on iPad, really, you see. So then he sent me this thing, and I looked at it, it looked like an avatar of the sculpture. So it just looked like Wonder Woman. I thought she could stand on her head and no one's going to be amazed these days, you know. So on the phone I'm saying to him, no, I said, it's, it's not realistic. I said, realistically, it's a sculpture. So it was interesting that the, the use of the same words, but they had a, and so he said, oh, okay, I get it, you see. And so he then worked on it. And now, of course, it does look like the sculpture. I wanted her to maintain her dignity as the sculpture so she doesn't walk off or anything like that. As a result of this, I think, uh, I was asked by the fashion designer, Christian Louboutin, mm-hmm. if I would like to uh, have a room in, the, in this travelling circus type exhibition he's got going around the world. And I'd seen it in Paris. I didn't know he collected my work. Um, I should have done, I suppose. But anyway, uh, and it was going to the next show was going to be at the Grimaldi Museum in Monaco. The filmmaker David Lynch was also had a, a, a room there, mm-hmm. and a, a video artist from um, called Rihanna from um, New Zealand. Uh, and I thought, you know, well, it's not really an art gallery, and. Uh, but it's not a trade fair. And I thought, if I were an art exhibition, I can have it in an art gallery. And so it occurred to me that actually to do something with this idea. And so uh, uh, in the presentation I did uh, this last summer, we have, it's not this figure, but we have an avatar, a figure, uh, walks down the length of us, uh, 30 metre, not quite 30 metre, wall looks out and sees one of my sculptures, a body sculpture, which then appears behind her on the wall and she occupies it, morphs into it and walks up and down and displays the, the body. It's a sort of light show. Uh, and then in the same display, the room was divided too, so you had this performance going on. And then on the other side of the petition was an exhibition of... I abstracted acrylic sculptures, <clears throat> which if you shine 
LED light onto them, project very positive shadows on the wall, which just all look like Picasso's. And uh, so it was quite a nice installation. So that's the work more or less to date. That's the latest thing. Uh, the gallery wants to show the video in Paris, but I'm, it's a learning curve for me because I don't work in this medium. But, uh, and what it turns out is that, well, it'll have to be a totally new thing. I mean, we've got the material in the computer, obviously, but if you take a 30-foot thing and you try to move it into a 14-foot room, it means it ends up this big. And I want the figure to be, it's bigger than this, so that when you're in the room, the figure appears life-size. So that's the, um, a project, and that's for about a, a 12 months' time in Paris, if all goes to plan. <laughs> and do you know when you'll be showing these? Uh, n- not exactly. I mean, uh, there are some irons in the fire, but... Uh, uh, that's certainly on the cards. There's an invitation to show with the gallery where I've shown once in, in Zurich and an, another one in Venice. But um, in a way, they're slightly tied up first with the contractual thing of how that, you know, the gallery that's, yeah. thinks they've got the main interest to work out how all that works out. So, uh, so that's it at the moment. Fantastic. I love getting a chance to see them. Amazing. (laughs) Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Alan Jones. On the website, I've put together a slideshow of images of Alan's work and a short bio. I've recorded a ton of really great interviews, which will be hopefully coming out soon. Everyone from actors, graphic designers, illustrators, fashion designers, and much more. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at sizewhispers.com.